Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet... You can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hey, everybody. I am live in person with Ronnie. What's up, man? Yeah, I'm fine. How are you? Excellent. So you made the journey all the way from Lebanon to here. That's I am so excited that we're finally getting to do this for years. I remember I uh, I got a random email from you one day years ago. Yes. Uh, just you know we had we had exchanged a couple of emails and then you asked to be a writer and then I, I blink an eye and you're one of the top contributors, awesome articles <laughs> and you know a, a metal guitarist or a bassist. I'm a metal guitarist, so it's uh it's really cool to to finally hang out with you. It's so awesome to be here, really. Yeah. Man, I love stuff like this. It's the, the only awkward part about doing a podcast with friends is it's like, I feel like I'm repeating myself, even though <laughs> like we had this conversation a long time ago, but now we're in front of the camera. So let's try it. I'll try to make this, you know, this kind of smooth. But um, no so I guess we'll just kind of start with the easy one, your background, right? So you were born right outside of Beirut? Um, yes, right, right outside of Beirut. Um, and then I lived all my life there and I just moved like five years ago when I got married I moved to a place close to Beirut that's because I was a full-time musician for 15 years and the music scene is mostly active in Beirut so I wanted to move somewhere that's close to my work and is Beirut known as like a big music city um, yes, I mean, even during the Civil War, which lasted 15 years in the 70s and 80s, the music scene was still pretty active. And That's it, awesome. Yeah, and it got even more active, uh, like really, really active, probably during the last 20 years or so. That's very cool. Yeah. I mean, all the places I've been, like, every city has music, but Mm -hmm. some cities are definitely more known as being like, you go to this city, every night you have a choice of four things where, you know, it's not always like that, but that's pretty cool. Yeah. And uh, so were were most of the bands that you played in hard rock and metal, I know you'd sent me a couple of of videos of you doing, like, jazz stuff and, like, more laid back stuff, too. So uh, I basically started playing music because of metal. Um, And... I then slowly started to um, get into other styles Mm -hmm. because I wanted to incorporate other styles into my playing, you know, to make to make my style a bit more unique. Mm. So I incorporated like funk elements and jazz elements into metal. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I developed like this 
unique sound throughout the years because I played with many different people, many different artists across many different genres. So I, I did metal, of course, I did pop, I did funk, I did jazz, um, even I did some local Arabic music. So uh, that's awesome. Yeah. You know, it's from um, from like a mental point of view, having a wide variety of music in your head is just always awesome. At least for me, if you're a fan of music, and it does affect your playing in a good way. But what I learned, interestingly, later on in life, I was in my 30s, I was working with a friend who was doing mostly acoustic stuff. Mm -hmm. And I do, well, I do play acoustic. It's mostly just metal guitar is my favorite. <laughs> and so I started working with her for a while. And your hand is in a completely different position. And the way you pick, at least, should be completely different. Of course. And I practiced with her for like a month and a half. And then I went back to metal. And I kind of thought, oh, man, I'm going to stink today because I haven't played this kind of music in a while. And I played better than I'd ever played. Yes. Both because the muscles that I was used to using were rested. Mm -hmm. And then I worked through all the muscles around it because my hands are in a different position. So it was, it's kind of like building core strength for your guitar playing hands, yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But so I was absolutely blown away. So I try to make an effort now to, to play different styles of music. And I don't get a chance to practice that much. But when I do, I don't just play the same songs over. I try to mix it up and throw something different in there just for that reason. It's kind of yes. neat. Because um, even, even technically, when you play other styles that will unconsciously um, move to the style you're playing mm. you know uh, just like um, just like I play pop let's say five days a week mm -hmm. uh, and when I go back to playing metal unconsciously I'm gonna incorporate elements of pop into my playing because yeah, yeah because I've been playing like for five days <laughs> you know the same riff or technique but it sounds interesting yeah when it's mixed together I I also find too that even if I'm hitting the strings the same way, because I I have, uh, I play like I mean I, I play like a large fat man. That's like a fat caveman. It's the best way to describe it. Like I, I put percussion into the guitar. I love rhythm guitar. I love the crazy stuff. But but you're right. But it's not even just how you hit the notes. It's you hear the music come through and you hear like a really cool pop riff. And now next thing you know, instead of playing the notes, maybe I slide a note. Just yeah. to make it sound a little more like a pop, you know, electronic riff, and exactly. by the time you're done, you get a really cool song that yeah. you know, totally different. Because and you know, no one would ever listen to it and go, "Oh, that's a pop song," yeah. but it's still part of it. Uh, it's kind of cool. Yeah, it's it's all in the details and the nuances. Yeah, that's. And you exclusively play five string bass. I play six string bass. Oh, uh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's funny. So when I start playing playing bass um, I thought that the more strings the better you know uh, that's funny yeah so uh, one of my top influences was uh, John Myung from Dream Theater hell yeah so um, when I first watched Dream Theater on video I was like this guy can, can play six string he should be awesome you know yeah. and um, and then I learned it's it's about this it's about the style it's about uh, what what types of technique do you use I mean some of the best players in the world play four string basses yeah uh, I saw Victor Wooten a, a little while ago he's amazing it's, yeah you know he he invited one of his friends up who brought a six string and he just was making fun of him the whole time like there's a lot of strings on that yeah, bass yeah, yeah, yeah. you sure you know how to play <laughs> that's Steve Bailey right the other guy uh, I believe so yeah yeah super amazing player yeah. Uh, so yeah, one of my top influences, which is uh, was uh, Jaco Pastorius. Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. So uh, he plays four string. He played four string uh, basses exclusively. 
Um, so, but I actually, right now, I play in a band where we just, um, we're a four-piece band, so bass, guitar, drums, and a singer. And we play this wide variety of styles. And what I do, I play chords mm-hmm. on my six-string bass. That's neat. Yeah. So I play chords and I have a, um, I have a small pedal, pedal board where, where I try as hard as possible to imitate a keyboard sound. So when the, when the guitar player is soloing, there's like this pad effect underneath the solo and not just single notes. That's very cool. I like yeah. that. I, um, uh, my friends are in a band called Answer Infinity and the lead guitarist very often, he has um, uh, Axe Effects. Yeah. And he'll program it, and he is like the quintessential lead guitarist. He plays the solos and he plays the leads, and he doesn't need to be the center of attention. So there's many times where AJ, who is one of the few people in the world that play like I do, another large gentleman that plays <laughs> like that too, coincidentally, but you know he's just pounding away on rhythm guitar. And Mark will sometimes just hit his axe effects and have a keyboard effect and just have like some atmosphere going. And, you know, he just, he loves it. He loves adding to that style of music yeah. in his own way. And then when it's time to solo, and he shreds his face off, like, you know, like he would expect. So that's cool. I, I like approaching stuff different mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. I especially, one of my favorite things, too, I joined a band of the most of, mostly professional musicians. I was the only chump in there. And I was listening <laughs> to all of my friends' solos, and I would slightly change the way I played the rhythms based on where in the solo he was. Exactly. And no one noticed it first. And then the, the drummer one time was like, do you do this, that, and that during the solo? Yeah. He's like, why? Because like, it makes Frank sound better. And he's like, there you go. I'll match you on the drums. And he did. And he would do like the alternate timing thing. And it just, you know, and my, my friend Frank, the lead guitarist, was oblivious. He's just like, I just want to solo. Do whatever the fuck you are. Like, I- <laughs> so, but that stuff's so... It's so neat, and I always notice that in music when you listen. Like, there's a couple of Inflamed songs that the solos were good, but the, what they play underneath it, wow, it's so unique, and it brings the whole song forward. Exactly, so. exactly. L- like, uh, on the plane, on my on my way here, I was listening to Injustice for All for the millionth time, whatever. I love and, that album. Um, I, was, I was falling asleep, and then I listened to, to Blackened, so I don't know why, why it's, it's right before I, I fall asleep. I'm extremely focused on music. Mm-hmm. So I was listening, I was listening to Blackened and the rhythm section and the solo was like, what? Why have I never heard this before? It's amazing. It's yeah. be- even better than the solo. Yes, there's a couple of rhythm sections in that album that are better than the solo. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dyer's Eve, too. Wow. Because it's the same thing that he was playing, but he changes the way he picks during it. And so, I mean, I like soloing, but when I play Dyer's Eve, I play James's parts straight through. I don't even hit the leads because he just plays it so unique. I don't even think they play it live, or they play it correctly live or something. What's what's your favorite Metallica album? Justice for All. Dyer's Eve is my favorite song, too. Wow. Okay. You know, my favorite song is Eye of the Beholder, and they never play this live. No, it's a great song. Yeah. Really good song. I love that one. That's what taught me how to do bar chords. Because you got to bar the entire, all six strings, and then you basically, so it's almost like an open chord that you shift. So it's it's kind of fun. Right. Um, Let me ask you this. Uh, What, do you remember the first time you ever listened to metal? Well, it would have, you would have to define what metal is, because I remember being a little kid and waking up my dad woke me up at like seven o'clock in the morning and I heard I'm like, what the hell is that? Okay. Sitting on a park bench. I'm like, 
I was so pissed. I was woken up, and then I mean, I I basically loved metal since then. And I've heard, you know, when the Guns N' Roses album, the Use Your Illusion albums came out, my dad bought those. There was a bunch of uh, songs from like the '60s and '70s that he listened to that you would classify as metal. Never Black Sabbath. I didn't really discover them till I was a teenager, but I mean, definitely. Even some uh, some of the Doors, I would absolutely call that metal. If you just change their guitars a little bit, the way he screams during some of them, yeah. it's you yeah. know. So it really depends, but if you if you're talking about like um, like metal metal like yeah. what, what you what you hear as that, um, uh, I I always kind of thought Guns N' Roses was hard rock. So I would they say are. it was probably it was probably Metallica, mm-hmm. and then shortly afterwards it was Megadeth because somebody's like if you like them you got to listen to these guys too. So, but it probably was Metallica then, I would think. Yeah, you know, um, so Metallica. VS Megadeth. This argument is usually... I, I would usually put out this argument as Metallica is um, just like we say in IT, user-friendly. Mm. So they're easy to get into. Yes, 100%. But, but Megadeth, there's, um, they're like this multi-layered band. So what I did, um, I, I tried a small experiment on my wife. So when we first met, my wife is a classically trained pianist. Mm. So um, I had her listen to Metallica. I guess it was Master of Puppets, the entire album. Mm-hmm. Then I had her listen to Countdown to Extinction. Mm. And I asked her, so which one do you like more? And she was like, Megadeth, hands down. Because like, she's a classical musician. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah. Absolutely. And and she would analyze parts like, mm, he, he used the chromatic scale here, he used that, he used that. And Metallica for her was like, oh, that's so repetitive. That's so, <laughs> that's so tiring. That's so, Wow, that's a whole new perspective at looking at uh, things, you know. Do you uh, do you know music theory and do you read music yes. and stuff like that? Yeah, I know nothing, <laughs> nothing. Renee and my friend Mark, the guy from Answer Infinity, they'll occasionally start talking to me. And I'll just, I'll, uh, sorry, excuse me, I, I gotta stop you for a minute. What fucking language are you speaking? Because I don't know anything. And Mark one time was like, well, do you know what a chord is? I'm like, I got a chord. He's like, do you know what, you know, and he, so he, I know like the absolute bare minimum that you would need to know what a guitar is and how it works. And then I took lessons for maybe two or three months when I was 13 that just taught me what's an open chord, what's a power chord, what's a note. And then that was pretty much it. And then this was really pre mainstream internet. So I was kind of talking with friends, you know, trading, trading tips with each other and figuring out the wrong way to do it. And then realizing like, Oh, that's actually unique or that's really stupid. You're doing it wrong. Or, you know, just kind of, kind of figuring it. So, um, you know, that's, that's a great thing about modern music. You don't need to learn music to be good at it. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to classical music, you need to study like theory. You need to study like sometimes history to uh, to to make a good progress in, in classical music, I studied musicology in college. Mm. Uh, I during that time I was already playing bass with many bands, but studying classical music completely changed my perspective uh, of looking at things. Um, it's very 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 much theory driven. Mm-hmm. It's very mm-hmm. much harmony driven. Um, but at some at some point. It's it's useless when you're playing modern music. It's completely useless. I mean, look at the main riff of Master of Puppets. 
the the very intro of Master of Words. Yeah, which is notes going down the fretboard. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So it it makes no sense uh, theor- in, in theory. Although, if you want to sit down and break it apart, it it would um, it would look like James and uh, Kirk. Actually, I guess Kirk and, uh, composed that part. Anyway, mm. it it would look like they studied theory for years. That's where, funny. Where actually it's something that sounded cool. And so they, there's actually a few parts of that song that are kind of like that. They're kind of music theory esque. Yeah. Because I, I definitely remember watching a few videos on YouTube where music theorists broke down the song, yeah. and there was a bunch of parts where they're like, "This is so complicated, and yeah. so ridiculous," and I don't think they did it on purpose. No, no, I think. No. <laughs> no, no. So yeah, I mean, you know, some of the coolest things I ever did were mistakes. So exactly. you know, that's I love that stuff. Exactly. So when did you actually start playing bass? What? How old were you? I was sixteen. Uh, so the, that's, a, that's a funny story because I wanted to be a singer before I wanted to play bass and there was this local band that needed a singer and a bassist uh-huh. so I thought yeah why not go the Tom Araya route and you know pick up both but at, um, I sucked at singing so, <laughs> <laughs> so I just stuck with, uh, with bass and uh, yeah what about you? Uh, I always, same thing, I loved music, wanted to be a singer because I didn't know anything else. And then I remember, this is such a cheesy story, but I, I remember watching Slash walk up on the piano for the November Rain solo and I went, I think I think I want to be a guitarist. <laughs> and then one of my friends played me Rust in Peace yeah. and 30 seconds into the song I went, I don't want to play guitar, I need to play guitar. <laughs> this is, what on earth is this? By the time I got to Tornado with Souls, I was like, opening up the phone book remember phone books and like flipping <laughs> yeah, yeah. through like guitar teacher like you know um, and uh, rented a guitar and just kind of went from there for a couple of months and uh, he was the one I wanted a flying V because of Dave Mustaine and he ended up finding me a Kramer Voyager which is this weird star shaped thing and I played that for a while and and I actually in the last band I was in I was everybody I, I mean I never fit in anywhere I like that I don't have a problem with that but like I dress like this people are always making fun of me like you look like the band's accountant not a freaking <laughs> guitar player and I was like you know maybe I should try to fit the part and I played I tried playing a uh, like a slash style guitar and one of my one of my best friends Colleen comes up to me one time and she's like I gotta be blunt you're way too fucking big for that little ass guitar. I was like, <laughs> Slash plays it. She's like, Slash is five foot two. Get your flying V back and look like you're supposed to. So I was uh, back to my flying V and there we go. But yeah, it's an, I get the Rust in Peace flying V over there, of course. So yeah, that was it. I was about 13 when I finally picked up the guitar and it was awesome. I, I loved it. It's, um, I went through a couple of phases where I didn't play that much, then got back on it and Unfortunately, the past couple of years has been—I I just haven't had any time. I'm trying so hard to figure out a way to, to play again, but the music that we play—it's not like—I don't mean any disrespect to casual guitarists, but it's not like singing "Kumbaya" around a campfire. <laughs> no, it's not. You know, you can't just play twice a year and think no. that you could do it. Uh, you could actually injure yourself if you try to play exactly. the music we play and you're not warmed up right. So exactly. So what what I try to do to to combat this. Uh, laziness is I try to force myself into this practice routine that I do every day. Hmm. It's like before I go to bed, I need to sit down and do 45 minutes of scales. Even if I'm dead beat, I hmm. need to do that because, um, or else I would fall behind the competition. That's, yeah. that's how I think about it. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm kind of like that with retro RGB. And like at the end of the day, I'm like, Man, I don't want to do any of this. 
I'm like, well, if I don't write this article, I don't get to promote this awesome product. And yeah. if I don't get this out, then somebody else is going to do it and they're going to get it wrong. So I mean, yeah. just so I end up working, you know, 13, 14 hour days. I think I think part of it is that I get to be nerdy and creative with retro RGB. And I think when I was only nerdy at a lot of other jobs, that's when it really pushed me to pick up the guitar. So you're both sides of your brains. So uh, maybe I could maybe I'll finally take a break one of these days, take like two weeks off and just play guitar for two weeks. But um, you know about about that about practice actually. Um, when I got really into video games, like the, the past twelve, fourteen, when I got back into video games during the past twelve years, um, a genre that I find that I found myself gra- gravitating towards the most is the shoot 'em up genre. Mm, me Be- too. Yeah, I love it. So it's mainly because I come from a practice background where I sit down and practice skates and practice whatever on the bass. So this genre like requires a lot of practice to, to, to be good at. So that's, I don't know, that's, that's just a point of... Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. View that I... Can I add another layer to that? Of course. When you're playing the music that you play, you both of your hands, both of your sets of fingers are yeah. doing completely different things. Uh-huh. And you have to kind of think without thinking about what's going on. And yeah. playing a shoot 'em up game, yeah. just bullets are going all over. And while, yes, you're using two hands to control it, you have to take in everything at once. So it's very much like playing a complicated song in that you have to agree. focus on focus. You know yes, what I mean? Yes, like, yes, yes. Exactly. Uh, exactly. <laughs> So um, I know you told the story on previous podcasts, but I, I enjoyed very much your story of the first console that you got. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so it was the uh, Sega Mega Drive. You know, I, I haven't called it a Mega Drive for a long time. <laughs> I got used to Genesis, but it was the Sega Mega Drive. Um, I originally wanted a Sega Master System because my cousin had a Master System. And um, I once paid them a visit and they were playing Double Dragon. So, yeah! Wow, I played that. I played this game at the arcade. It's so cool to have it at home. I need, I need, a, I need a master system. So um, I asked my parents uh, for for a master system. My brothers they had an Atari, but Atari back then I never thought of it as a as something that you could spend like hours playing. No, know? I can't do that with Atari. Yeah. Atari is a couple minutes at a time for me. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, my parents, they agreed. They say, okay, just... Uh, my father actually told me, just give me a couple of months till Easter. Um, it's weird. In, in Lebanon, we used to get gifts uh, during Christmas and during Easter. So, yeah, hmm. it's weird. That's kind of neat. Yeah. So, um, during Easter vacation, uh, we went to this game store, to this toy store, actually. And... Um, my father asked the, the person there for a master system and um, the guy was like well, we don't have that we have a mega drive and I said what? what's a mega I, I want a master system I don't want the, whatever a mega drive is um, and, and you know I had no idea that this is an upgrade and I had no idea this is just different to me yeah you're a kid so hey, yeah. you just want what you know right? Yeah. So. 
so yeah, I, I got a Mega Drive and I fell in love with it. Funny thing is, I get it. I got a terrible game with my Mega Drive. It's the port of Thunderblade. It's called Super Thunderblade. Yeah, it wasn't the worst game I've ever played, but it's not the best game <laughs> yeah. either. So yeah, it was so frustrating. It was very hard as a kid. I couldn't finish it. Um, but the second game I got was Golden Axe. Nice. So yeah, nice. Good arcade port. A lot of fun. Yeah. I like that. That's a, that's like. The greatest mistake upgrade ever as a kid. <laughs> like I, I could only yeah. imagine. I, I, like, how long did it take you to figure out? Like, holy crap, this is the better one. Like, yes. not with Thunderblade. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> so no, it actually took me years um, because later on, uh, my brother's friend brought uh, a uh, a uh, what's it called? A power base converter. I was just about to ask you yeah. about that. Yeah. A power base, a power base converter, and uh, I thought, yeah, I could finally play Double Dragon now. And I insert Double Dragon. I was like, nah, my my Mega Drive can do much better things. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. yeah. So, were you able to buy the power base converter in Lebanon? Yes. So um, Sega was pretty popular in Lebanon, and I knew like very few kids had Nintendo consoles. Hmm. So Sega was um, you 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 could see um, they had commercials on TV, they had billboards on the road. That's Sega cool. was huge. So yeah. growing up around here, there were two major uh, toy chains, and I'm sure it's different all over the U.S. But there was Toys R Us, which was definitely all across the U.S. We didn't really have any around here, and there was one way off, very far away, you know, as a kid. But we had ones called Toy Works, which right. didn't really sell any Master System stuff at mm-hmm. all. So I think maybe once I saw a power base converter in a store, maybe. I, I got my, my Master System and my power base converter from my neighbor who grew up in California, where they had Master System and Nintendo. We were pretty close where he lived, so, uh, but we had never seen that. So I never really saw it any Master System stuff growing up, which just kind of made it a little more special because I had that weird thing that no one knew. Like, why are you plugging a, you know, a headphone jack and putting on your 3D glasses <laughs> to play a bad space yeah, area? Yeah, and it's yeah. Like, but yeah, that's interesting because I, all over the world I hear different people have different stories about yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I first started to watch YouTube, uh, like all the, all the American YouTubers were talking about NES. That's, you know, like 2006 with AVGN and stuff like that. Mm. I was like, Really? NES was that popular? <laughs> That's funny. So, yeah. Um, so, well, you know, we, we've talked about music and stuff and, and where we got it growing up. Were, were games, I mean, with Sega putting so much money into advertising and all that stuff, so it was just walk into a game store and pick up a Genesis Mega Drive game and, you know, no, no issues there. there yeah. were, so you, you got pretty much the same library that the Europe did and everything, right? Yes, yes. Um, actually, on... I guess it was Christmas of 94 I got a Christmas of 95 I got a Robocop versus Terminator game Okay And it was a Genesis game So it had the Genesis red uh, label on the cover Mm -hmm. And I inserted it into my console And it said It said something like only, Only made to work with NTSC systems Mm -hmm. I was like what the hell What is that so they they accidentally sent the wrong stock or something or just... no actually we went back to the store the next day and they sold us this adapter that you could plug in uh, this very cheap adapter you could plug in your Mega Drive and would it would accept then Genesis cool. cards 
Well, doesn't it also work with a Game Genie? Um, yes, but we had no Game Genie back then. I don't think I owned one for a Genesis. I owned one for Game Gear and for NES. And Game Boy, actually. But I never never for the rest of them. So No, you could you could do that with Game Genie, if I'm not mistaken, yes. That's pretty cool. But it wasn't like that with music. A lot of the music you listen to, you couldn't just walk into a music store oh. and buy a, a tape or a CD, <laughs> right? No, yeah, music was very, very different in Lebanon. So in the early 90s, metal was extremely popular in Lebanon. Mm. Um, it felt like uh, like this natural transi- transition from the civil war to like this very calm and peaceful uh, time that we lived in. Um, like everybody's everybody's buying Metallica tapes, Megadeth, Megadeth tapes. Pantera was pretty big in Lebanon in the early nineties. So what happened then is um, some kid took his own life, and they blamed it on metal. So. The kids, they tried that in the U.S. a few times, too. Yeah, yeah. I know, I know. So the, the, the kid's father was this big um, army general, and he wanted to blame blame it on, you know, on something else. It's, mm. Yeah, so... Yeah. Uh, and when that happened, uh, religious institutions uh, also uh, intervened, and they said, yeah, this is bad, this is bad. And the most active party that... Um, that were act the the that were they took took part of this witch hunt I would call it was the uh, local uh, local production houses. Really? Yes. Oh, because they wanted you to go see live stuff and not listen to tapes yes. instead. That's because, so funny. Yeah, because like Metallica was selling more tapes than local artists. That makes sense. That's it's so, so funny to hear the real reason behind all this stuff and. Mm-hmm. It's you know so many people like to drop the word conspiracy theory and just dismiss people, but yeah. so many of that is actually true. Like oh, that's a conspiracy theory. The local the local artists aren't trying to push out heavy. Yeah, they probably were probably. So wow, that's that's great. Yeah, like well, great. That's like a great story. But <laughs> so how were you able to get music from that point on? Um, it's it's mostly bootlegs uh, we would wait for someone who was coming from Europe or US and uh, they, they could bring tapes or CDs with them but the funny thing and it's it's a bit stupid so back in 94 when they first banned metal in Lebanon they made this list of artists there was like Metallica, uh, Megadeth Nirvana uh, yeah, Pink Floyd whatever Pink Floyd, uh, yeah, Pink Floyd uh, <laughs> Led Zeppelin, uh, stuff like that I mean they're a bunch of morons. Um, the funny thing is that in 95 or 96, you could walk in a music store and buy a Cradle of Filth CD. Oh, jeez. Yeah. yeah. But you couldn't buy, like, uh, Black Sabbath, Heaven and Hell. That's... Yeah, that's so, so funny. Yeah. Oh, man. So we weren't, we weren't completely blocked from getting uh, metal music, but, yeah, we still relied on bootlegs and whoever was, you know, like, travelers... It's like here. Uh, listen to to this CD I got from the US. This band's called Manowar. Like, what what's Manowar? That's that's yeah. awesome. You know, it's funny. There's still people trying to do that, trying to turn metal into into whatever political thing they have. And the last one I saw was just a huge thing blown up on Twitter about how all black metal bands are white supremacists. And I'm like, I mean, I'm sure there's a few, there's a few. but that's there's a few, always yeah. been anti-religion and. Yes. Even after after the first couple of years, they kind of just 
were like, well, I like the music, I don't really care about that anymore. Like, it was never, like, I, I at least would have understood if it was religious groups, but it was just a bunch of assholes making up stories. Exactly. It's like, every metalhead on the planet probably went like, what are you talking about? Exactly. That's not, that's totally wrong. That That's equal to me saying I'm drinking a glass of orange juice right now. It's just <laughs> not true. It's just not a thing. So, yeah, it's, it's so weird to... People go in circles, yes. and some people just still fall for it. And I guess I understand, like, a new younger generation comes in and they haven't been through it before, but when older people who have been through it twice mm-hmm. still fall for it, it's like, maybe you're just really gullible. So. Um, you know, um, I'll, I'll just, uh, I want to get to that point by telling you a story. Just um, in 2003 or four. There was the second wave of witch hunt in Lebanon, of hunting metal bands. Because during the 90s, because of the underground scene, metal was huge again. Mm. We had now, we had live bands, we had venues hosting metal events. Mm. They were like, you know, do whatever you want, just don't, just don't buy metal CDs, don't buy music. And uh, don't worship the devil. <laughs> right. Uh, so... During the, the early 2000s, metal got big again, mm. and we faced another wave of witch hunt. So uh, a friend of mine actually went on this TV show where, uh, yeah, this, That's awesome. uh, yeah we, we were on, uh, on national TV, and they were asking us about all, this, all the, the questions. It's like, what does Iron Maiden mean? What does ACDC stand for? I mean, and um, our singer Iron Maiden actually, is basically like an audio version of what the History Channel used to be. <laughs> it's like, there's no, no, you know, no death and destruction and Satan unless it's a story that they're telling. And that, exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, so my friend actually told them something, and it's um, he said, "Do you ever watch horror movies?" Uh, that's that's the singer from our band. It's like the director of a horror movie doesn't necessarily believe in monsters. Right, so yeah. he's telling a story, a horror story through a movie. Metal is somewhat similar, you know. We we tell stories through music. Doesn't believe it doesn't uh, doesn't make our life any different, you know. Uh, yeah. it's not like like we monsters in real life or so. It's kind of funny, like uh, the song "I'll Be Watching You," Sting. Yeah, it's a song about a stalker. But that oh, was really? like the number one hit. Yeah, it's a, it, it, even he like it, people think it's a love song. It's all about a crazy stalker. And then you get a song like "Tornado of Souls," which is David Stain getting divorced. And like I was listening to that one time, and my, my mother was pretty strict growing up. But wait, I was talking to, about it with other kids, and some other mother was like, "I can't believe you let him listen to that devil music." <laughs> my mom was like. You listen because of the guitars, and that song is about him getting divorced. That's not about the devil. Like, what is she talking about? Like, yeah, it's the stigmas of all that stuff still cracks me up. You know, I I, I grew up in a very um, religious community, so uh, if you did anything that was out of the normal, it's like okay, you're doing this. Um, this is so antichrist. This is so against Christianity. This is like no, no. This is different. We're not attacking anyone. Yeah. No, it's just music. Uh, so I, I always find that small communities—they're always like paranoid. Yeah. About I mean, hey, we're not. We have nothing to do with you. This is different. This is our thing. Um, it's because we're different. We're not necessarily attacking you. So, I mean. 
you just summed up like half of the wars since the dawn yeah. of human beings right now. Like yeah. just because we're different doesn't mean we're bad. Yeah. And like you know, no, you're different, or no, you're right next to us, which means you're the enemy. Like yeah. that old Simpsons joke of Springfield versus Shelbyville. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. it's a perfect metaphor for every <laughs> two countries that are next to each other fighting. Right. So it's. Uh, and, you know, one of the things I've loved about doing retro RGB is meeting people from all over the planet. We're just the same. Like, we're all right. unique and different, and our experiences make us who we are, but the same. Right. You know, we all right. eat shit and die. Like, we're the same. <laughs> it's just, it's so funny to hear people. Like, when I started traveling to Asia a lot, and I made some friends in China and some friends in Taiwan, and occasionally hearing them talk about each other, and I'm just like, I understand what what this is about but i bet you if my both sets of friends were all here with a beer in our hand like we'd all be friends instantly and it's just it's so it's i don't know i hope humans learn how to get over that before we all nuke each other or something because it's just (laughs) it's always fascinating to me yeah i mean um i just remember another story about about music in lebanon i guess i told you that story before uh so in the early 2000s um when we had computers and uh, internet wasn't wasn't that popular in Lebanon until probably like 2005. Uh, so the only means of getting music was through MP3 CDs. So, uh, so discs with MP3 files on yes. them. Yes. Okay. So that's uh, you. You would go to a uh, DVD store, like a DVD rental store. Mm-hmm. And they had this like behind the curtain section. Yeah. Well, you would go um, and pick from thousands, of this huge catalog of thousands of MP3 CDs. So uh, I discovered Halloween that way. Nice. So nice. I, yeah, I saw I saw like this very cheap printed paper that had Halloween albums all over it. I was like, what? What's that? And okay why why don't you burn me a cd of halloween i would like to listen to them so we would you would leave for an hour and then come back and yeah because we used to take a, an hour to burn a cd yeah, yeah. <laughs> and go home with a full discography of uh, yeah that's so, cool that's that's how i got into most of the bands when i grew up um you know because on on cassettes everything was limited and then when I start getting MP3 CDs, I'm 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 sorry for for pirating the music. For <laughs> I have such a strong opinion about that. My favorite band is In Flames, and I was 19 when a friend of mine showed them to me, and I did not have the money to go buy a bunch of CDs. Maybe I could buy one, maybe. And he copied me Clayman, and then he made me like a mix CD of some of their other songs. And since then, I've seen them 26 times live. Wow. Bought a bunch of t-shirts, bought every album, bought all their DVDs that came out, all because I stole their music. So it's got to be a happy medium. Like Spotify, getting all the music you want in front of people is amazing. The CEO making like $200 million a year when all the artists are getting ripped off really sucks. So we need to have like a swing around for that. But getting music in front of people is so important and I just yes. it's it's one of those things where it's not like movies movies very often you watch once maybe twice so stealing a movie would definitely hurt it but stealing the music and then you go back and you buy their new albums and you listen to those over and over right. and it's you know we gotta figure out a better way to do that because it's just 
I mean, I have so many friends with the same exact story of like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I copied this cassette. I downloaded all their MP3s. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think I've ever bought their album, but I've seen them live four times and bought 10 T-shirts. Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. at the end of the day, I think the band is fine with that. Exactly, so. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, if, if I had a way to, to buy CDs back then, I would probably bought a, a few of them, but I had no way. Yeah, I mean, that was such a big deal, buying an album with you know yes. you're a kid you save up whatever little money you have yes if it's twelve dollars and tax is going to be another 20 cents you're asking your friends for a quarter like you gotta, <laughs> so like choosing that album so important and I, there was a lot there was a lot of other stuff that i think i would have really loved but i just was like do i like um i loved anything that dr dre did i loved anything he was a part of so i was like do i buy the new snoop dogg album or what is that Wu-Tang Clan? I don't... I never really heard them, so I bought the Snoop album, and then, you know, years go by, and I look back, and I'm like, I would have loved that album. <laughs> loved it. And there was just a way for me to, to get it. So, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. No, the only thing I know about the Wu-Tang Clan is the weird PlayStation controller. They yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I never listened to them. I'm not a big rap fan. So, so when, when we're done with this, there's two things that I have to, to do. The first is I want to do the Halloween test with you. Yes. Where we listen to the CD and the cassette. Because yes. I even, my wife doesn't like metal at all. A couple of my friends, meh. And I did the same test with them. And they picked out differences. And they're not even musicians. So I'm, I'm curious to see what you think. Yes. And I also want to play you two songs off the Wu-Tang album. Just to get your opinion off of it, because I I'm, I always enjoy metalheads' opinions on stuff like this, because mm-hmm. there are so many things that kind of cross over. Like DMX's mm-hmm. voice is basically a heavy metal guitar, but a right. voice. Like, a, so yeah, we'll have to do that after this. I think I'll get a you might get a kick out of that, and it's not like it's you know long songs or anything. So it's not like I'm like, oh, I want you to listen to two Dream Theater songs, and four days later we're like, well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the the only like rap band that I kind of listen to kind of like is Buddy Count they're not rap rap but yeah yeah. that was they were awesome and so many people especially younger people hear the story of Ice-T getting a song band and they think it was one of his rap songs and it was his metal band that got the song and it just yeah that was always impressive that you know and he was another one where you know growing up if I like metal I'm not allowed to listen to rap he was one of the first mainstream that was like fuck you I want to be in a rap band and a metal band what are you going to do about it so exactly but he was obviously successful their last couple albums were awesome the last one was really great I found yeah yeah catchy songs good songs too it was very cool so yeah that's good stuff alright I was impatient I couldn't wait we went and played Wu-Tang and Halloween and everything and so what do you think first of all the, the whole theory about albums that were they were listening to cassettes while they were mixing them did you hear as versus you know oh then we'll just throw it on a CD after did you yeah. hear the difference there's a huge difference when it comes to metal so what I noticed is the instruments are much more defined uh, much more well defined on cassette than on CD. Mm. Like on CD, everything is flat. So the intro of Eagle Fly Free, yeah. I felt like the guitar was in your face. Yes. In uh, the, the cassettes, uh, the, the cassette version, uh, where in the CD, like everything just blends in together. Everything is clean. 
Yeah. Right? So, like, the, the vocal lines are a little cleaner, which yes. is cool, but everything else blended better. So, yes, yes, yes. Uh, yeah, I just... I've been so fascinated with that because you know, cassettes. I'm not saying cassettes are better than CDs. I'm just saying when the engineers, the band, or both were listening to one way over and over while they're mixing, that's probably the best way. So I also did Michael Jackson's Thriller, um, uh, B- Billy Jean, the re- newly remastered for iTunes version versus the original album on vinyl. What yes. do you thought about that one? So I had a different opinion here. I thought the newer version sounded a bit better in terms of in terms of punch and bass. Mm. It was like more defined. The older version although sounded like very uh, genuine. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That you know and that's when we start to get into unfortunately money how much you spend on like a phono preamp versus everything else. So I bet you if I had one of the really fancy ones at uh, Skyfi Audio in Jersey, check out their YouTube channel, by the way, if anybody's out there, but they had a couple of preamps they were showing me that were reasonable for high end. So it's like a thousand bucks, way more than I could afford at the moment. But when you compare it to some of the crazy stuff they have there, it was actually not expensive. Uh, but if I switched my preamp to one of those, I'm really interested to see what the difference would be because, you know, to bring out the different sounds. But I don't have the budget for that, and I also don't really want to go down that road <laughs> because then it starts – that's when you start to get into territory of, like, do I need a $500 cable to connect the – you know, so it's <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. let me just let me just step <laughs> off. But, yeah, that was, that was cool. I love doing that. I love that stereo, too. I'm going to be doing um, a video on that receiver. But it's got one bug that, like, every once in a while it locks up and you have to reset it and you have to redo all of the settings. And the calibration, at least, is saved to a file. But hopefully NAD will fix that one. I hope. We'll see. But that was pretty cool. I like it. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Glad you, I'm glad you enjoyed the experiment there. No, no, and it sounds awesome, by the way. Like, both are great. It's just, I guess, it's like everything in music. It's... It's about opinion, right? There yeah. Is, uh, yeah, it's whatever you prefer. Yeah. There's really no right answer for that one. Yeah. But I've definitely been trying to embrace some of the stuff that's like for its era mm-hmm. just to see. Like I got that Betamax player and you saw that I got WrestleMania 3 on beta. Yeah. And I haven't, like I started watching it and I, I thought I was going to just leave it on in the background. Like, oh, let me listen while I'm working. And I, I had to stop. Because every time I looked over, it was just shots of the parking lot and all these awesome weird cars <laughs> from the 80s and yeah. mean jeans. Somehow was young, but still didn't have any hair. It was yeah. just one of those. <laughs> but, so, yeah, I, was, I always liked wrestling. I was never the biggest fan, but I think that one's going to be one that I need to just sit and just take it all in and enjoy it. So Yeah, I, I love wrestling, by the way. Um, I grew up watching wrestling. It's, it was like one of the first international TV shows that we got in Lebanon. Hmm. So we had like, um, in 1990, we had just like a, a couple of channels, probably a bit more, and they both aired WWF back then, which is mm-hmm. WWE now. So uh, that's where I first learned how to, uh, that, that's where I first heard English, before getting into music, before getting into movies. So, Yeah. So, what was the path for you learning English? Because you grew up speaking French, right? French, yes. And then you also speak English and Arabic as well, right? Yes. So, how did you go down the path to learn those languages? So, uh, at school, we just learned French and Arabic. Okay. Um, and in Lebanon, we don't speak Arabic per se. We speak Lebanese. 
So Lebanese is a mix of Arabic, French, English, what have you, mm-hmm. and then and a bit of old Turkish. Mm. Uh, so it's a mix of all these different languages. And the most important language, which is Syriac. That's okay. uh, that's an ancient language. Mm-hmm. Nobody nobody speaks Syriac now, but um, it's uh, it, it's highly it was highly influenced by uh, actually our language is highly influenced by Syriac, which is mostly used by uh, Christian um, uh, researchers now. Interesting. So, so yeah. is it kind of like Latin, where yes. like when you're growing up, a lot of exactly. times in America they tell you to learn Latin, and then it's easier yes. to learn all the other ones. So it's start with Syriac, when you don't actually speak it to other people, but you use it as the building blocks for the rest. Exactly. Interesting. That's it. That's it. My, that's fa- cool. my father-in-law speaks uh, Syriac. He's an archaeologist, so that's why he speaks it really well. Oh wow, so, that's pretty cool. It must yeah. being an archaeologist in your area must be mind blowing. Yes. That's so, I mean, it's, uh, you know, what we got here, at least what we, we know about, is a lot of Native American stuff, which is really neat. But, I mean, that's a whole other level. <laughs> that is, you're talking ancient history. Yes. So You know, a, a funny thing, not funny, uh, is um, the war in Beirut uh, in the late 80s was so heavy. Like, Beirut got destroyed during the war. Mm. And the... F- I won't say funny again, but ironically <laughs> funny. Ironically, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. The most interesting thing that happened is that while Beirut was bombarded, they found this whole new city that was laying underground. That's so, insane. Yeah. So when the war was over, they um, there's a huge part of Beirut that was left for archaeologists to do their work on, and mm. it's still now um, you can go there and visit. And they only found out about it because. It was it was heavily bombarded. It's crazy. Yeah, I really believe there's a lot more that we don't know about our human history, and I don't mean ancient aliens. No. <laughs> Maybe, but I don't think so. But yeah. I, I mean actual real humans that lived. I really think that, you know, it's obviously proven that the history is written by the winners, and we've already started to find Correct. a lot of the differences going on. Even in recent history, even in our lifetimes, we found out a lot of things that weren't at all as they seemed. So I'm really there's a lot of evidence that shows that it's very likely there was a lot more of human history than we know about. And I'm always kind of fascinated. And a lot of it, you know, a lot of it's anecdotal evidence, but a lot of it also ties things together. Cause like, Hey, I don't want to, I could talk for hours about this. So I'll skip through it to the end, <laughs> but there's so many things in life where it's as a kid. And right now as a 40 year old, like, well, how could this be that? How could you just go from this to that? And some of these theories with that are based off of you know findings fill in those gaps. And it fill in those gaps with very scientific, legitimate yes. answers. Not ancient aliens, not ultimate dimensions, just like, you know. So I, I hope someday that a lot more of that stuff is unearthed. And you know, stuff like LIDAR certainly helps a lot. You could be able to a lot of that stuff that was buried underneath, if they knew to look for it, yes. they could probably find it today, but how would you know to look for it? Yes, so. exactly. Yeah, that, that stuff's really, really neat. Uh, even things like debating the age of the Sphinx and doing oh. lidar tests to see what's underneath the paw. Or, you know, is there really the hidden chamber? And uh, I, I love that. So maybe someday I'll be able to travel and, and go to all those different places and see. But for now, I'll have to rely on you know footage of people that were already there. <laughs> yeah, you won't be disappointed by the, the by the pyramids. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the the temple in. Um, no, it wasn't the 
Coliseum in Lebanon. What was the name of that yeah, one again? I always forget the pronunciation. It's called Balbak. Balbak. Okay. Yeah. That is cool. <laughs> and you saw, what was it, Deep Purple there or something? Yes. So there's this ancient temple or a, a Coliseum thing. It, it, I guess it is a temple. Temple, Coliseum. Yes. I don't know. Our wording for ancient things is all messed up. Like, according to a lot of archaeologists, things are either a tomb or a temple, and it couldn't have ever been anything else. And it's like, <laughs> if the same archaeologists went into the future and they saw all of the apartment buildings in New York City, they might have been like, wow, there's a lot of tombs and temples here. Like, no, it's an apartment <laughs> building. Like, so I, you know, who knows what what it actually was, but that that yeah. that to me is mind blowing. That you know, people are standing on that same stage mm-hmm. that was stood on thousands of years ago. Yes, and acoustically, by the way, it sounds perfect. Yeah, I I wonder how they figured this, this out like thousands of years ago. Same way we do now, I think. Just trial and error, <laughs> yeah. tweaking until we get it right. You yeah. know, it's uh, probably took them years back then. Yeah. I mean, it still kind of takes us years, right? <laughs> yeah. I think the the difference is that um, the our current ability to copy knowledge and and share it is at an instant rate. Yes. Whereas then, you know, whatever tools they were used to writing on were were handwritten. Or if there was a society that figured out a printing press before, you know, then that all got destroyed. Most mm-hmm. likely, if that were true, it would have been a comet or something. So. It's one of those things, and it, it kind of makes you think, too, with everything going to digital, if a comet hit the Earth 50 years from now, when we're not really using paper anymore, what would actually be left? Just a bunch of people that learned how to be nomads and live off the land, and you know, 50,000 years from then, would we all be looking back at all these remnants of tombs and temples we found, or, you know, is it... I never so, thought of that. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of neat. Or maybe we got it right, and there's just, you know weird things that sometimes you stumble across either that that would still be a very cool thing to learn so I, I don't know but yeah that's that's pretty cool the oldest place I'd ever been to was uh, Forbidden City in Beijing Okay. and it was basically like a modern city without plumbing and light switches right. it was really weird to think like 3,000 years ago somebody probably had the same arguing about stupid politics, talking, you know, <laughs> contemplating the stars, the same stupid conversations we all have today, and, you know, but just a completely different time. It's just really cool. That's so interesting. That's so interesting. It's like, that's exactly why they say history repeats itself, mm. because it really does. Yeah. Um, but, but I'm not sure about society. Society evolves, right? Sort of. We tend to make the same mistakes over and over and over. <laughs> uh, I'd like to think I'd like to think we evolved, but We're at, at a very slow pace, at least. Yeah, I mean, we haven't, you know, we haven't nuked the whole planet yet, so I guess maybe <laughs> we're there. So, if you think of, yeah, or, or, I don't know. Actually, I was about to say, if you think of some of the conquerors over history, if you handed them a nuclear weapon, would they use it? But some of the mm. crazy generals in the U.S. in the, the 40s and 50s were absolutely the type of people that are like, that's ready. Curtis LeMay, the famous general that, like, the stories about him come out uh, that he, he was basically nuts. And, like, <laughs> I'm sure there's people in the military listening to this that are going to want to punch me in the face after I say it, but there's a lot of stories about him where, and a lot of stories about some of the, the nuclear testing. Like, the first bomb they ever set off, there were a couple of scientists that were like, we don't know if this is just going to incinerate the atmosphere. We don't know what chain reaction is going to happen. And they were like, well, got to do it before the enemy does it. Fire that <laughs> off. And, you know, it's like, 
so who knows? Maybe you know, maybe we really came a lot closer than we thought, but uh, maybe a few times. Yeah. I I had to unfortunately witness something very similar a couple of years ago in Beirut, this giant port, ex- uh, this giant explosion at the port that we thought that was nuclear at first because it surely looked like it. So that, I think I messaged you the moment I saw that pop yes. up, and you said you heard or felt the the shaking, and oh. you're miles away. Oh my god, that was like eight, probably a bit like five kilometers away. And, and you I still f- felt it. Yes, what I felt um, felt it is underestimating what I what I went through. I uh, I felt this huge massive earthquake, like massive massive earthquake. I felt like the ground was shaking and I was uh, it was like moving upwards, and yeah, and the sound was oh my god, wow. Yeah, I'd only been in an earthquake once, and it was the last time I went to visit my brother in L.A. And it was weird because we landed, we're driving to his house, and all of a sudden I started to get a little a little dizzy and a little nauseous, which never happens to me. Like, I, I get tired, but I never get nauseous. I'm like, wow, I wonder, you know, wonder what this is. And then we sat down, we cracked a beer, we're sitting around my brother's kitchen table, and I, I almost was like, you know, I'm going to lay down on the couch. Like, this feels weird. And all of a sudden, like, I felt I felt something, and I immediately just assumed it was me. Did I lean back on something? Did I step on something? And then all of a sudden, everything's shaking, and, like, the pictures are rattling. And we were like, oh, wow, it's an earthquake. And it lasted for 20, 30 seconds. And wow, then that's a long all of the nausea went away, all of the dizziness went away. <laughs> I started wondering, like, I, I started remembering. I wonder if, wonder what caused that. Somebody... I vaguely remember hearing something about how the magnetic field shift slightly when an earthquake happens. Mm-hmm. So, did you feel anything like that? Did you get like a little bit of nausea and then all of a sudden, like you know, the um, room shook or like no, 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 just Actually, happened too quickly? Yeah, we were in the garden. We were in the garden, and my wife was still pregnant back then. So, oh, yeah, wow, that was that was very stressful. Um, no, what, what I what I that felt, must have been a horrifying yes. couple of hours because if that was a, a nuke with radiation, like, wow, yeah. that that is absolutely crazy. Actually, I guess there was radiation because what caused the explosion is chemical material, right? So uh, that's a that's a guess, uh, but yeah, it was horrifying. It was uh, it was scary. It was very scary. You know, I thought the explosion is like around the corner because oh. of this super, super loud sound. Um, yeah, and half half of the capital got destroyed. So, yeah. That is... I mean, I, I've never lived through anything like that. I mean, a silly earthquake that didn't really do any damage and hearing gunshots a lot growing up in Bridgeport, and that, that was pretty much it. Like, I, you know, we never had anything like that happen around here. The closest thing would have been 9-11, but yes. we, we were far enough away to not hear or feel any any of that at all. Right. So, You know, I, the, the music scene, we were talking about the music scene uh, early on. The music scene was really active, it was really, yeah, the, it was really active around the Beirut port. There was like two or three places, like big streets filled with music venues mm. that got destroyed. And when I say destroyed, I mean destroyed. That sucks. It's like when you go there uh, right after the explosion, uh, you you won't find anything. Anything. That's so, that yeah. is terrifying. I mean, it's a blink of yeah. an eye. I mean, it makes you think about what's happening right now in Ukraine, and of course, obviously, yes. what you went through growing up, and you know, with the civil war, it's like. 
I, I remember hearing interviews with people in Iraq in the early to mid 2000s. Yes. You know, kids in like 21, 22 years old. It was just, yeah, we can't go to that coffee shop anymore because, you know, we got bombed yesterday. We lost a friend. So we're going to this coffee shop tonight because it's just, and, you know, it, it's, it's crazy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the world is an interesting place. On a more positive note, uh, I'll uh, I'll come back to the English. Uh, hmm. your, your question about how I learned English. Uh, so just like I was saying, I I grew up talking and speaking French exclusively. Then I learned how to speak Arabic or Lebanese, mm-hmm. and um, I actually never learned English in school, hmm. like never. So uh, the way I learned English is through music, music and wrestling, WWF, <laughs> and uh, and movies. I watched a lot of movies, and back in the day we used to watch movies and had French subtitles. So uh, that's that's the way I got uh, I got into English, and then during uh, my college years, I went to an American uh, university, and that's where I learned how to write in English. Uh, I learned huh. music in English. Then I took a few journalism courses, and yeah, that's how I uh, became a writer. So this might be a really stupid question, but I don't speak any other languages. The closest I came is I started learning Mandarin Chinese, and I could wow. find the bathroom, wow. order order beer at a Jägermeister shot, like okay. you know. But when you're watching those, I mean, I, I liked them, but very cheesy '80s wrestling, and yeah. you know, late '80s, early '90s. Some some wrestlers, it must have been easy to realize that they were being over the top because their body language was animated. But some, yes. their voices were kind of crazy, but they weren't as animated. So was <laughs> it easy to pick out, like, that's not how Americans talk at all? Or was there, like, when you were a kid, obviously in college, I'm not talking about that, but when you were a kid, was there ever a point where you were just like, I wonder if all Americans talk like that? Or no, like, no, no. <laughs> No, no. I I always looked at wrestling as a uh, as a gimmick. Cool, you know, okay. as like uh, how to say it, like real life cartoon. Yeah, I don't know if that perfect. makes sense. No, that's perfect. Yeah. That's the perfect description <laughs> yeah. for it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, no, no. I understood that. So yeah. it's you know, I'm thinking of growing up watching different movies and. The older you get, the the easier it is to interpret body language and everything else. But as a little kid, I just you know, you hear accents of over-the-top characters in these movies, and it's, you know, when you're little, I almost I almost feel like I thought people from different countries talked like that. Yeah. You know, and then once, you know, once you hit at least middle school age, maybe even before, you start to realize, but that, that kind of always cracked me up. And, you know, on the flip side, I have a lot of friends that are bilingual, and they bring their kids up that way. So one of my friends just brought their two-and-a-half-year-old over, and she kept flip-flopping between talking between English, Spanish, and French. She grew up in Spain and moved here, and then I think her husband speaks French, even though he's not French or something. So they just... They, and, I mean, the kid got it all because he's really little, and he's just Sorry. learning the same way you would learn one language, but he was learning three. So it, it's, it always kind of fascinates me to, to see, like, where the, the transition is from learning another language to, like, getting the culture, but... I mean, obviously, by the time you were an adult, you know, you nailed it, so that's not a problem. But to being a, a kid, 
like I, you know, I couldn't imagine being like five or six years old and then learn starting to learn another language. Like that would be like, man, I get, I, I give all of my friends credit who were able to do that because <laughs> I don't know if I'd have been able to. You know, that reminded me of something when I uh, when I watched move, action movies back in the early to mid nineties. You know, they had Arnold movies, uh, Jean Claude Van Damme movies. Yeah. Uh, what's what's it called? Uh, Christopher Lambert. Right, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. It's uh, we 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 pronounce his name Christophe Lambert. Yeah, that's yeah. So um, I thought they 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 spoke English perfectly. Then when I when I learned the accent, I went back watched the movie. So I'm like, oh my god, this is terrible. That's funny. Yeah, I have a vague memory of thinking like all people from Austria talk like Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> I was a kid, so give me a break. I wasn't like 17 and being a racist or something. Like I was a little kid. <laughs> like, oh, get to the Java! Yeah. <laughs> but, oh, man. Christopher Lambert did uh, Raiden. Raiden, right? Yeah, of course. Combat, yeah. Yeah, that's funny. So I, I can't remember if we've talked about this on camera before, but um, when we shot the that fun CDI Exterminator video, you had all of those cool consoles. Yeah. So were those consoles that had gone through Lebanon, or were those things that as you got older, no. you were like, oh, what's this crazy thing? Yes. I want to get one of those. So. Yes. So, um, yeah, I shipped all of them. I bought probably one or two consoles locally. You know, the very, very popular one, like... like um, like N64 probably or or PS2 but okay. I imported most of the other stuff you know I was talking to Artemio yesterday about the PC Engine mm-hmm. L- like how it's my favorite undiscovered console it's like I've never heard of PC Engine before before mm. YouTube or before the internet and then when I discovered it and imported it it's it's now one of my favorite consoles of all time good, good library of games yeah. on that one yeah so uh, when uh, growing, growing up in Lebanon, um, we only had access to very few consoles throughout the years, like Sega Mega Drive and Super Nintendo, and then later on N64 and PS1. Hmm. And that's it. Uh, okay, probably the PlayStation 2 era was very popular around the world, but I'm talking like retro phase. Yeah. Uh, I never saw a Saturn before. I never saw a Dreamcast before. I never, um, never even heard of um, the Jaguar. <laughs> you uh, can skip that one. Okay. No, I'm kidding. The four Jaguar fans watching and get pissed. <laughs> no, actually, in in 2011, I met this guy in Lebanon. Uh, his name is Carlo. Uh, someone had told me about him that he's he's a retro gaming enthusiast. So I paid him a visit, and he has 40 boxed Atari Jaguar in his place. Wow. So the story is that uh, someone brought Atari Jaguars to Lebanon back in 93 or 94, and it flopped. (laughs) I mean, it kind of flopped here, too. (laughs) Yeah, and it flopped, like, terribly. Like, they sold probably 10 units. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So this guy, Carlo, he went and bought everything for 100 bucks. That's awesome. Yeah. So yeah. at least one of those games going to be worth owning then. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I, you know, I don't know. You just said something that really made me think. I don't know if I've discovered any console that I didn't know existed. Uh-huh. There was a bunch that I had heard of, or maybe heard of, forgotten about, and went, "Oh yeah, what about that?" But uh-huh. I guess 
I mean, maybe some stuff like the Wonder Swan. I didn't know that existed, but I haven't really played it, so I don't really, uh, you know, I don't really know a lot about it. But there were definitely ones that I heard of that I had never played ever before, like the Atari Lynx, you know, stuff okay. like that. Uh, that was pretty neat. So let let me ask you this: So back in the '90s, were you aware of like the Japanese scene? No. Okay. No, and. and I think that's very regional. I think people on the West Coast were way mm -hmm. more linked into yeah. that, yeah. and people. And I was, you know, I was, uh, I was born in '81, so I, I was still very young for that. And I didn't subscribe to any of those magazines, right. so I didn't really know about any of that stuff. But it was not mainstream. Like it okay. wasn't, you know, it wasn't something like, oh, we know that Saturn is going to get, you know, here's the library, here's that. Like yes. we heard that the Japanese was getting an earlier release, mm -hmm. but. I didn't know anybody that would have known how to import it, how to get any of that stuff. So, yeah, it was very... I think... Maybe I'm talking out of turn, but I think America was definitely very sheltered and didn't know much about other countries. And it's, you know, it's a little embarrassing on one hand, but on the other hand, North America is a massive, <laughs> massive piece of land. Yeah. There's a lot here, so I, I can totally understand that I as well. I noticed that uh, yesterday, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, so at least where I grew up and you know the town that I was in there there was not any culture of gaming from other countries which right. sad because we missed quite a lot and a lot of games that you didn't need to speak or read Japanese to play you know there's a lot of shooters that I would have loved that you know of course didn't really need to know the story just I'm sure it would have added to it but it's the here, here's your plane go shoot things like you, anybody could figure that out so yeah you know I, I learned about other cultures like I was saying earlier from YouTube Mm. Back in the late 2000s, I used to watch channels like Classic Game Room. Remember this channel? It's not around anymore. I don't think I ever saw that one. I've heard the name. But... Yeah. Um, so Classic Game Room actually started doing reviews back in 99, like way before YouTube. Yeah. I, uh, I remember hearing the stories about all of that. And didn't yeah. they put that on their own website yes. or something? And yes. yeah, that's pretty awesome. They used to review Dreamcast games exclusively. Hmm. Uh, and then they came back in 2008. That's what I when I first discovered them, and um, the, it's a it's a very laid back show where this guy just shows a console, makes a couple of jokes about it, but I dis I learned a lot about I mean what's a Turbo Graphics 16? Never heard of that before. What's yeah. uh, what's a Neo Geo? Hey, yeah. I, I played Neo Geo <laughs> games in the arcade. What's that? Yeah, that's cool so, as hell. Uh, yeah, that's that started my journey back into consoles, back into discovering. Um, the libraries and I, I played on emulators for years yeah me too uh, lots of great yeah. software emulation out there that's why it kind of drives me nuts when people are like oh Bob hates software emulation he's all about FPGA no I no, like it all I no, like it all no. <laughs> yeah, some yeah. I think are a better fit than others depending yes. on the situation but no I, if it wasn't for a software emulation there would be no retro RGB definitely so. exactly exactly. so so when um, when was the point that you realized that Okay, I need to get back to original hardware. Um, it was the original Wii. I bought a controller adapter, a Mayflash brand that lets you use Genesis, Super yeah. Nintendo, and I Nintendo. Those, yeah. Very laggy. Yeah. I didn't even really realize what was going on. I was just like, this definitely doesn't feel like the original. It looks like the original, but it doesn't feel like the original. And that's what pushed me to get a just... I had a... It was... A, People still had a lot of CRTs at this point, and so I picked up like old TVs from my parents' house, and I bought a couple of consoles on eBay, and I wired them all up with composite video, 
And it was great. It was absolutely great. That's what pushed me to it. But I remembered out of nowhere, I just remembered being in an electronics boutique games, game and PC software store in the 90s. And some guy was just going off about, have you ever seen a Genesis in RGB? And I'm like, I have a computer monitor with an yeah, RGB input. Yeah. And so I was like, I wonder if people still talk about that. And then, you know, there we go. That's, that's <laughs> the origin story. That was the rabbit hole that I never climbed out of. Just kept going deeper. So, but yeah, that, that was really pushing it. It was the, the Wii Virtual Console it was very good. But I, I really knew there were differences, and I just couldn't put my finger on it yet. And yeah. all these years later, it's lag, it's display lag and controller lag, it's emulation lag, emulation and it's lag. some of the accuracies of things and stuff like that. But, I mean, props to Nintendo, because what a gateway drug. Virtual console into starting retro RGB. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, so you felt like a need, kind of a need to, to look out for a better solution, right? Or It was... I mean, it was part nerd OCD. It was part I had a little extra time on my hands because I switched jobs to one that was much easier. And But it was also that... And I think this is why I get so upset about things like those pound cables because I knew, I knew that the experience was better. But I didn't know why. Was it that I was remembering it better because I was a kid? Mm-hmm. Or is something wrong with this? And then once I started plugging in original consoles and I played through like Duck Hunt, um, DuckTales on the, on the NES, like it was better than I remembered. I liked it as a kid. So that's what, that's, I think what, you know, I never thought of it like this. So thanks for asking the question, but I think that's why I get so offended at these solutions because if I didn't push forward, if I had still had my other job where I was just working all the time, I would have never taken the time to find those original consoles. And I might've just gone, Oh yeah, I mean those were fun as a kid, but you know they didn't age well. Whereas they actually did. You just can't play it the wrong yes. way. So yes. you know ab- about that. Um, I, al- I always think about retro games. Um, let me just put it this way: when I first got into retro retro gaming, um, the word nostalgia was being thrown around everywhere. Yeah. Right. Um, my philosophy is. These games are still great, you know. And growing up, I played like 15 Mega Drive games. I couldn't afford to to buy a lot of Mega Drive games. Mm-hmm. So looking back at it now, th- the library is awesome. I'm yeah. rediscovering games I never played before. So I'm not sure if it's the nostalgia factor that. Um, so I have a strong theory about that. It's a gateway, probably. If you have a Genesis Mega Drive cartridge <laughs> and you plug it into your console and you plug your controller in and you flip that switch on and you see your CRT come to life and you hold your controller, that's nostalgia. Right. The moment, the moment you start playing, by the time the first level is done, nostalgia doesn't mean shit anymore. <laughs> now it's here's a game yeah. that I'm playing, and if this game stinks. I'm going to go play a modern console or a modern PC game, and and if it's good, it's just a good game. It's not nostalgic, it's not exactly. retro, it's just a good game. Just like, I, you know, we just listened to Wu-Tang Clan, it's you know, 30 years old or something, 25 years old, and if you liked that song, that wouldn't be a retro rap song, right. it would just be a song a that song. you liked. So Exactly. Yeah. Just a lot of YouTube channels were, uh, were throwing that term. Nostalgia, it's all about nostalgia. It's not all about nostalgia at all. I no. mean, I never played a PC Engine before in the 90s. I never played the Saturn. They're my favorite consoles right now. 
Yeah. Yeah. Because zero nostalgia. Yeah. It's just a good console. Exactly. So. Exactly. You know, I had a, I had a similar experience in uh, about getting to retro hardware. Uh, I bought an original Xbox back in 2009, mm. and I modded it. I installed uh, emulators. I used to play emulators on my computer, mm. but um, I thought, you know, why why not um, uh, play emulators on a CRT using composite? You know, maybe I could get close to the uh, original hardware experience. And then I noticed some um, emulation issues, especially with the sound. Uh, yeah. So I, I thought, did it sound that bad? So that's when yeah. I, you know, bought a Genesis, not a Mega Drive. Yeah. I bought a Genesis, and it's like, yeah, man, that's how it should sound. Yeah. And yeah. That's that started it for me. That's awesome. Yeah, our team will be happy to hear that the, the audio side of things is what brought you over. Yes, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Because I, I couldn't tell the difference. The big difference back then between like a crappy video signal and um, like crystal clear RGB signal. I don't know if I told you about my first uh, RGB experience. No, I don't think so. Um, yeah, so it's weird how I got into RGB. So the friend that I was talking about earlier, Carlo, mm-hmm. he got into uh, he wanted to open his own arcade uh, shop. Oh, like, that's ten years ago. So um, he hunted for arcade boards and arcade machines around the country back then. And he found like a stack of arcade boards. Uh, And um, he actually mentioned something like, you need a super gun to play those. What the hell is a super gun? Like a super gun? I still don't know why they came up with that name (laughs) for it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So he he showed me a super gun that, that had SCART. Uh, on one end I was like that format is still around I used to see it on VCRs back in the 90s and he told me yeah this with this cable you could get like the highest quality uh, the highest video quality possible so I started my RGB journey with a super gun that is awesome yeah so at what point did you realize that you can't just, or you don't have to, you're not limited to just arcade boards. You could play consoles with it too. We're like, where, where was that, uh, you know, crossover? Funny thing. So I imported uh, a PC Engine interface from Japan, mm-hmm. and it was RGB modded by someone who's. Oh famous. yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So um, it had an RGB cable. It came with an RGB cable, and when I when I plugged it in into my TV, I I, I was used to uh, to the turbo graphics. I played it in RF. <laughs> I mean, if you weren't in the middle of a city, I'm yeah. sure it was fine. No, no, but... it, it was it was decent. Then, the moment I plugged RGB into into a consumer TV, I said, "What the hell? That's so much better! So 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 much better!" Yeah, it, it was. Like, it wasn't like a small difference when you had to, you know, watch closely. Like you could immediately tell. That's that's a huge upgrade. So you went from RF to RGB. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I imagine that was a massive difference. And right after that, I started to look up RGB cables, and I bought. I don't know if you. I'm sure you remember those, like the six-in-one RGB cables. Yeah, they were terrible. Oh my god, they were they were horrific. Um, and then later on, I discovered retro RGB. 
Ah, sweet. <laughs> sweet. That's, uh, that's around 2015, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and then I started, you know, importing like one cable at a time and upgrading my setup and then eventually found the PVM in Lebanon. Uh, that's 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 a funny story. So when I found the PVM in Lebanon, uh, I was looking, I was looking for professional monitors everywhere. I asked hospitals, <laughs> I asked TV stations. Uh, I was very much influenced by Fondork's uh, videos. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Fondork. I like him. I wish he's still around. Uh, so the the last the last place I looked for was the uh, cinema people in Lebanon. Okay. So I asked around and this guy popped up. He said, hey, I have a few monitors. But hey, listen, man, those are expensive. I was like, yeah, okay, what, what, are, what are you asking for? He was like, what are you willing to pay? And he showed me this PVM 20 L2. I said, I don't know, like 300 bucks. And he was so mad. What? Do you know what this? I, I paid thousands. And this is this is for calibrating movies. I was like, okay, man, I'm I'm sorry, I offended you. What are you asking for? He was like, four hundred. <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, sure, it's four hundred. Okay. Uh, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> what a great score, though. It's a yeah. great monitor. Yeah. Jeez, I bought my first off of my, yeah. who's now my friend Phil. And uh, he had a bunch of them. He had a he hadn't gotten a D thirty two yet, but he he had found one and he was getting one. And you know, and uh, we kind of ended up talking for a while. And he's been stuck with me ever since. <laughs> yeah, I think I got it for a couple hundred bucks too. It was a twenty M two U. Loved that monitor. I think uh, it's at a friend's now. Um, Jose completely redid it. It looked like a brand new monitor when he was done. So yeah, it's a uh, that was an interesting one. That so was... how how did you find out about this whole? professional monitor thing so i had a tandy 1000 computer my dad did as a kid and it had an, an rgb monitor and i was trying to figure out a way to rewire it to work with the genesis but i didn't know anything about voltage levels sync and all that stuff so i couldn't get it to work so i started looking around in forums and i forgot which forum it was but i saw this guy phil who was talking about him and i said hey do you know if they work with light guns mm-hmm. he's like yeah i got a bunch they all work with them do you want to buy one? And I was like, yeah, where are you? He's like, oh, I just live in New York. I'm like, I'm right outside of New York. So yeah, that, that was basically it. And then, so Phil was the one that got me started. And then I started looking into it and it was just, it was right at the point where people were trying to get rid of these monitors and they were having to pay companies to come pick them up. Mm-hmm. So you could get them for nothing, which is how I ended up with most of the stuff that you see there. So it was, you know, it's uh, it's funny. A lot of people are like, "Oh, look at this guy! Is that what he spends his Patreon running on?" Like, I could no, I got this back when they were nothing. So, yeah, but yeah, that was basically it. I just stockpiled a bunch of them, and then some of the ones that that rose in value, I've traded over the years and stuff like that. So, but but yeah, that was a very cool one to go down and discovering different types of masks and uh, TVL levels, and it's just it it's kind of neat because everybody's eyes are different. So I could tell you what my favorite monitor is and you could look at it and go, Oh, that's cool. But I definitely like that one better. And we're both right. So (laughs) yeah, because I always wonder how, how that's all that all started like retro gaming and professional monitors. How did it start? How, 
did someone just one day say... Well, a lot of people blame me for the professional monitor part of oh, it, really? which is funny. <laughs> really? uh, but I think retro gaming really... W the reason that... The two reasons that I think it became so popular, number one was software emulation, so people were able to access the games, yes. and then number two was the collector aspect of it, mm -hmm. which is, you know, oh, I always wanted that game. I looked at it on the shelf when I was a kid, and that one's mint condition, so I'm going to go buy it, and, you know, yes. so I think both of, the, both of those, but I think the nostalgia thing wears off pretty quick. I think we're, you know, we're coming up to a point where, you know, nobody cares about Atari anymore, or, you know, I wonder when NES is going to be at the point where it dies down, but the game, from a collector point of view, mm. but from a gameplay point of view, I don't, I think with different ways to play it and easier ways to play it, you know, if you have an Android phone, you could spend a couple of bucks and get an awesome emulator right on your phone right. and it plays whatever you need, so I think it's, the, the gaming part of it's going to stay strong. Yes. Um, About that, uh, I always try to say to my friends: you don't need like a PVM to get the best experience. You know, you don't need yeah, any yeah. CRT. Yeah. Anyone? I mean, you could get a RetroTink 5X and an HD RetroVision or RGB SCART cable, and that's amazing. But if you happen to be able to find a CRT for free, just start with that, yeah. and then you know, plug it in with RF or composite. And if you like it, yeah, spend your money. I mean, if, If you get your blast of nostalgia, leave it in your basement, and then you know every couple of years, take <laughs> exactly. it out and play a game. So. Exactly, exactly. I wish cars were that easy. I'd love <laughs> to like you know stumble across a beat up old '69 Camaro and you know take it out and then you know throw it in a box somewhere and every every year or so open it up and tinker with it and put it back in the box. But. <laughs> well, I guess we got to wrap this one up. We're uh, you know preparing for Retro World. Um, we've had to pause it a couple times because I keep getting people messaging me like, "Where do we meet? What do I do?" So I don't want to let anybody down, but I also don't want to be rude and interrupt this. So unfortunately, I think we're going to have to call it. But yeah, we definitely got to do it again. I, the only reason I haven't done this before is because your internet connection is fast enough to record the video, but there's a long delay yes, sometimes. I noticed that. And a variable delay. Yes. So sometimes it's back and forth, no problem, and then other times it's like. <laughs> and then we both start talking like shit so it's you know uh, but we definitely going to make the time to do this again we'll figure it out we'll figure out some cool new way to do it but I'm so glad you're able to make it um, this is probably going to come out on Monday so hopefully yes. we will have met all of you at Retro World for then but yeah yeah I'm um I've always dreamed of attending a uh, retro gaming convention. I thought I, I would never, you know. This is a this really is, good one. Yeah, this is a dream come true. So thank you very, very, very much. Hell yeah. And I look forward to uh, meeting everyone there. Awesome. Well, thanks, Ronnie. And uh, we'll hopefully would have seen you all this weekend. Sure.